Well, good morning, Canyon Hills. I am so excited that you guys are here. I'm excited to be before you. Uh, and if you guys can do me a favor, if you guys can pass the basket of pens um, so we can take down some notes, I would greatly appreciate that. And as you know, we are in part three of the series, Who Needs God? And so previously on Who Needs God, I think I have to give you guys kind of a little background or else I'm concerned that you guys won't follow along in this message because uh, we need last week's, you know, a little recap. What we said, what we have said throughout the series, it, it, that there's a whole lot of people, in fact, you may know somebody that falls into this category. It may even be you that falls into this category that feels a little bit stuck in the middle because there are things about God and there's things about Christianity specifically that are a little bit unsettling it. So it leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions. That's kind of what we talked about last week. But at the same time, we're living in a world where we feel like there's this creator-less universe or living in that world that where there's no God, or at least there's no personal God, well, that's unsettling as well. So on one hand, now we have this doubt, and on the other hand, not for everybody, but the reason we're doing this series is because it is a growing number of people in our population, there's this sense or there's this feeling of despair. And so people are beginning to feel stuck in the middle, and Christianity or religion may be, just may be losing its appeal, especially if you were raised in this religious community or raised in going to church. And the reason I say that is, like I mentioned last, last week, is when we listen to these deconversion stories, we begin to hear the same themes over and over again. And I know that we're all unique, and we are, but at the same time, there are more things that we have in common that are more plentiful than the things that make us different. So when you hear these stories of deconversion, there's this tension. On one hand, you know, I really appreciate my upbringing. I really appreciate my experiences as a kid uh, going to church. And then there's even some part of me, I'm not sure if I fully believe, I'm not sure I fully commit, but there's something in me that I'm, you know, when I get married, I want to bring my kids back to church and I want them to have the same experiences that I do. So you see, there's this tension that we live with. And at the same time, there's some questions that never got answered in Sunday school. There are questions that never got answered in church. In fact, you might have been brought up in a church where, you know, you just don't ask those questions because you're just supposed to have faith. So consequently, when, when people tell their stories of deconversion or stepping away, you know, there, there, there's two common threads or two themes with almost all of those stories. Last week, we talked about somebody told me so God... And so last week, we looked at a list of gods that we grew up with believing in that I told you don't exist. In fact, I said that if you quit believing in those gods, good for you. I gave you two thumbs up, remember? Because you're right, those gods don't exist. But we also concluded last week by saying that if you've lost your faith or are thinking of walking away from your faith, then you might have lost your faith in a god that never existed in the first place. That was last week. Well, today, I want to talk about the Bible told me so Jesus. Now, a Bible told me so Jesus, again, is one of those threads that we hear in the deconversion stories all the time. And I have a feeling that for many, for many people who are thinking of walking away or are losing their faith or have already lost their faith, especially the Christian faith, this is a bit part of their story. 
Now, I'm going to tell you right off the top, today is a really heady message. It's a little bit complicated. And the only reason I'm saying that is not, it's just to let you know, because I really would appreciate if you guys pay uh, close attention. Because here's my concern. My concern that if you listen ca casually, you are going to misunderstand me. And you're going to walk out of here with more questions than when you walked in. And that's not my intent. I want to make this as clear as possible. Because let me just start off by saying, perhaps you, like me, were taught, you guys remember that song? Jesus loves me, this I know. Finish it with me for the... Thank you guys for doing that. Amen. Come on. Now we're talking. But that's where our trouble begins. And the reason I say that's where our trouble begins, and this is a precious song. And we should teach our children this precious song. But do you remember what I said last week? And I said that part of the problem is that we grew up, but our faith didn't. You grew up, and you outgrew your faith. Your childhood God could not withstand the rigors of adulthood and the questions of adulthood. And part of it is because our understanding of the Bible and our approach to Jesus did not grow up with us. And we find that there's this extraordinary conflict of information and a conflict of facts when it comes to our childhood version of Jesus in the Bible. There's so many examples I could have given you, but, you know, compared to what we learn as, as adults. So Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is problematic for a lot of adults. Because the implication that the Bible is the reason that we believe. In other words, I can believe that Jesus loves me because it's in the Bible. Well, how do you know that Jesus loves me? Well, because it's in the Bible. And are you confident that Jesus loves you? Yeah, it's in the Bible. The Bible says it, and I grew up with this. You might have grown up with this. The Bible says it, and you can fill in the bank. If the Bible says it, then that settles it. That's right. Right? That's how we grew up. The Bible says it. That settles it. Now, when I say that, that is unsettling for some of you. Because that is your whole perspective on Christianity. And the Bible says it. And that settles it. The problem with this, that if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, listen carefully, as the Bible goes, so does our faith. This is why we send off kids to college and they come back with no faith. Because we send them to a college where the Bible says it and that settles it. And then the professor got up and says, well, there's a few problems with the Bible, don't you know? And then they begin to talk about the things that maybe are inconsistent or historically verifiable. And your smart son and daughter that we paid a lot of, you know, thousands of dollars to educate comes home and suddenly they're smarter than you. And they already thought they were smarter than you to begin with. But now you have a professor saying, hey, you really are smarter than your Sunday school teacher and your parents. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, and here's the problem, and it doesn't have to be this way, it becomes an all or nothing. Christianity becomes this fragile house of cards that comes tumbling down when you discover that perhaps the walls of Jericho didn't. And when somebody in archaeology class or ancient history class says, hey, you have heard in Sunday school that the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But guess what? We've excavated the city of Jericho and there's no evidence that the walls came tumbling down. 
And by the way, while we're on the subject, there is no evidence that the Hebrew people made some sort of track from Egypt to Canaan, you know, the place they call a holy land, and there's no archaeological evidence for that either. In fact, if we study the Bible well, we're going to find that there's some contradictions in the Old Testament. And the, these, all these facts and figures that just sometimes don't add up from Kings to Chronicles to First and Second Samuel. And by the way, the Bible seems to teach that the, or, the earth is only about 6,000 years old. But everybody knows that it's 4.5 billion years old and that the universe is 14.5 billion years old. Now, if the Bible... If the entire Bible isn't true, then guess what? Then the Bible isn't true at all. If the Bible isn't true, Christianity, folks, comes tumbling down and we're here wasting our time. So consequently, during your whole lifetime and my lifetime, Christians feel, the, you know, com feel compelled to defend the Bible because the only way to defend the Christian faith, the fa faith is to defend the Bible. And unfortunately, what your students have discovered, and if you read broadly, you've discovered that it is next to impossible <clears throat> to defend every little piece of the Bible. But if your Christianity hangs by the thread of proving that everything in the Bible is true, you may be able to hang on to it, meaning you as adults, I, I love the Bible, I love the scriptures, I love God, and I can hang on to it. But unfortunately, maybe my kids, grandkids, and my next generation, and your next generation is having a real hard time hanging on to those threads. Because you see, this puts the Bible at the center of the debate. This, this puts the spotlight on the Bible, and everything rises and falls whether a part of the Bible is true. And that's really unfortunate, because what we're going to discover today is that it's absolutely unnecessary. So if you know someone or you yourself are thinking of deconverting from Christianity or walking away from Christianity, and part of the reason is that, you know, or part of it is just to justify your, your decision was, well, there are problems with the Bible because you feel parts of the Bible aren't true. And if parts of the Bible aren't true, that makes the entire Bible untrue. And besides, I grew up in church, and you would say, hey, where they told me that the Word of God is the inspired, infallible Word of God, and if you start finding parts that are fallible in the Bible, so consequently, people may grow up not wanting anything to do with it at all. But bear with me, and listen carefully. The Christian faith, the Christian faith does not exist because of the Bible. In, in fact, if you forget everything else that I, that, that I say or it starts getting confusing from this point out, you just need to know this, that the Christian, Christianity does not exist because the Bible any more than you exist because of a birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. And if you lose your birth certificate, I have great news for you today. You don't go out of existence. You do not exist because of a birth certificate because it documents your birth. Well, the New Testament documents, the documents that, you know, documents that something that happened. 
Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. It's actually the other way around. The Bible that you purchase in the Christian bookstore or that you download or that you turned on in your iPhone or iPad right now or that you're looking at online right now exists because of the Christian faith. Now, I want to explain what I'm saying, but it's going to require a little bit of history lesson. So again, bear with me. Again, this is probably a message where you guys, I know I gave you a lot of room to write some notes down, but probably a message where you might want to listen a little bit more. You guys know that we use a, what we call the Gregorian calendar today. And you probably know that, but in the first century, when Jesus was alive, they used the Julian calendar after Julius Caesar. So this whole, you know, after death, this whole AD, BC thing, not to be confused with ACDC, that's a totally different thing. Come on, wake up with me, will you? You know, this whole ADBC thing started about 500 years after Jesus. That whole AD dating the world or dating history with the birth of Christ was incorporated into our Gregorian calendar in about the 16th century. All of that to say is, you guess some of you guys are going to hear this for the first time, that Jesus was born about two or three years before he was actually born. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus wasn't actually born at zero. Because they, they, when they went to a different calendar and they were trying to base it off of something that had happened several hundred years before the 16th century, all I'm saying is that they got it wrong by a couple of years. So what that means is that Jesus is born two or three years BC, literally, maybe four. Thanks, Shannon. Which means that the reason I make a big deal out of this is that everybody pretty much believes and when you study this, you know that he was crucified in 30 AD, not 33 AD. Stay with me. Crucified in 30 AD, two and a half days, maybe three days later, he rose from the dead. A few weeks later, the church is launched, and it takes off. A few weeks later, a group of people go to the streets of Jerusalem, and they begin to say, we saw him die, we peered into the empty tomb, and now he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And everyone's excited, and they confront the people that crucified Jesus, and they say, you crucified him, God raised him, we've seen him, say you're sorry, you know, that kind of stuff. And people begin to repent. And thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem joined, not officially, but became part of the church starting in 30 AD. You guys tracking with me on that timeline? Now, the next big important date, and one of the biggest dates in Christendom, even though it's not referenced in the Bible, happens in 70 AD. In 70 AD, Titus had surrounded and built a ditch all the way around the city of Jerusalem. And on August 6, 70 AD, the walls were breached and the Roman army went into the city of Jerusalem. They burned down the temple, destroyed the temple, enslaved the Jews, banned Jews from, from the city. Thousands were crucified. Hundreds of thousands were shipped off into slave markets. And this is one of the most sourful, chaotic, painful, just unimaginable moments in the history of Judaism. In 66 AD, which is four years before that, Vespasian, who is Titus's father, comes down from the north of Galilee and just sweeps, or he just rolls up city after city, village after village, and, and slaving Jews, and, and you know, just kind of hurting in all the troublemakers and pushing them into the city of Jerusalem. And then he goes to Rome and eventually becomes emperor, and he leaves his son Titus to clean up the mess, and we know what Titus did in 70 AD. 
Now, the reason that's a really big deal is because nothing around this event is referenced in the New Testament, which is what makes some things problematic for people that are trying to prove the Bible right. Nobody mentions it. And the question is that if you understand history and if you know anything about the Jewish wars, this was an unbelievable event. And there's no reference to it in the New Testament. So one of the big questions in history is that why didn't the New Testament reference it? And the most logical and, exp and probable explanation, because everything is explainable, folks, if you study it, is that it hadn't happened yet. And I'll explain what I mean by that. It hadn't happened yet. That's why nobody mentions it. And the reason that that is important is that once the church was launched in 30, the followers of Jesus began to write down the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said. And that's where we get our, you know, our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and eventually the book of Acts. That follows what happened after Jesus rose from the dead and the church began. Then Paul, the Apostle Paul that we read about so much, he writes these epistles. So between about the years 49 and I believe 70 AD, but let's give some super smart scholars the benefit of the doubt, between 49 and 89 between 49 and 89, the New Testament manuscript, the manuscripts that were gathered and became part of the New Testament in your Bible, were written. Now, they were not written together because they were written by several people. And as you know, several of them are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches or specific churches. And the thing that makes this so important is that all of these documents were written, and here's the key to what I'm telling you this morning, that all of these documents were written during the time that eyewitnesses were alive. Now, now you're in school, or your kids are off in school, and the fact that they pick up some books today, and the documents, everyone's trying to tell you that they were written after 90 AD. And folks, there is zero, absolutely zero historical evidence for this. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But the reason that people want to put these documents out into the 90s is because that the only way that this could actually be a legend of a man of miracles and the legend of the resurrection is to make sure that everybody's already dead. But all the historical evidence points to the fact that these letters were written early. In fact, everyone agrees, and everyone agrees that the Apostle Paul's letters were written between, like in the 50s, between 52 and 55 AD, well before these guys were, were, were dead or they were alive. And the part of Luke, the book of Luke or Acts, that had been written in the early 50s and, or late 40s. So all of these things were written early. In fact, there's just no evidence to the contrary. And the only reason, again, to push these to a later date is to be able to explain that all of these miracles were cropped up and uh, because all of these miracles stories rising up and this man rising up, it was to make sure that all of these eyewitnesses were, were, were dead already. But they weren't. Now, here's even what's more amazing. I know that's a lot, so bear with me. What's even more amazing... And this is the kind of thing that if you love to read the Bible and if you, you read the Bible um, and, and you get to this scripture and you, that I'm about to show you and you just skim over and you say, yeah, 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 there's nothing there for me. Well, the New Testament authors, you know, I'm talking about the whole, not the whole Bible, but the, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, Ephesians, Colossians, basically the New Testament, especially the Gospels, the Gospel writers 
pin themselves down to a specific historical, not allegorical context. They pin themselves down. In other words, the way they wrote the Gospels, if they were not true, it would have been very easy to discredit. And they don't read like a story. You know, we have a lot of first century illustration, second century, third century illustration of story. Well, it wasn't written in a story motive. It was written in a historical motive. And I just want to give you one example from the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And just, I want you to look at this from diff- with different set of eyes, with different goggles, and look at the length that Luke goes to pin himself down and to pin his story down to a specific historical event. And look what he says. In the 15th year, your notes say century, that's wrong. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, great names, right? And Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, if you're reading the book of Luke, and you get to this part, it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know? But this is the amazing part. This is a historian's way of saying, hey, fact check me. I double dog dare you to fact check me on this. Luke is saying what I am about to lay out, the story I'm about to tell is a narrative, it's history, it happened, and I'm willing to go so far as to pin this historical context, and this is not, folks, read like a fable, because it isn't. You know, back in the Roman Empire, or back in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, he says, no, I want you to know exactly when I wrote this because I want you to know when these things happen. So he pins these events to a specific historical context. Now, don't you think this is very risky if you're lying? I mean, this makes it so easy to discredit anything. You may say, hey, there, there, there's, there's so much I can say about this. I mean, about this whole context of, of, of discrediting, but I have to move on. But... If this is something that you're interested in, then I, I just want to, and I hope you're interested, I want to recommend a book to you. It's uh, Frank Turek, who, you know, he's written this fabulous book called Stealing from God. And, and in fact, this book references and addresses many of the things that we're talking about in this series. But in chapter seven of this book, Stealing from God, and it's, again, it's up on the screen, he deals specifically with the reliability of the New Testament documents. Because if the New Testament documents are reliable, well, folks, then it's a game changer, right? In terms of the authenticity and the credibility of Christianity. So moving on in our story, you know, these documents that I'm talking about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all these documents, you have to know, were copied. They were widely copied. And this is the amazing part. They were copied and distributed from Jerusalem to Rome to Alexandria to all around the Mediterranean rim. And during this whole part of history, these documents were copied and copied and distributed over and over again. Now, this is a big deal because nothing, absolutely nothing, parallels this in history until the creation of the printing press. There is nothing that even comes close to the explosion of literature and the copies of this literature. Not even the Roman emperors who had to hire people to chronicle their lives and, and their wars and their battles. There, there is no example of anyone renowned that has anything written about them with much less literature. There, there's, 
so this is an absolutely amazing thing that happens in history. Well, I want to ask you a question just so you can think about it. What do you make copies of? When you go to Kinko's or you make a copy in your printer at home, I'm not talking about printing anything. What do you make copies of? Important documents, right? You want to make copies of things that you want to preserve. These documents were considered so important that people who were copying them were username and password careful. And this is a big deal because sometimes you're going to hear, oh, there's so many copies and there's so many variations. And let me just give you some great news this morning. If you buy the English study Bible, it has all the major variant readings in it. You know, this person said this, but that person said that. And, and it basically looks like a copyist edit. And all of the major discrepancies, guess where you find them? They're in the footnotes of your English study Bible. And you know why they're there? Because there's no secrets. Because it's transparent. Because there's no magic. There's no, oh, I hope nobody finds out. That's why sometimes you read your English study Bible and you see a footnote down at the bottom. And the bottom part says, hey, an earlier manuscript, you just read this, but an earlier manuscript says that. And all of those important discrepancies, all of those variants are there, and still they make no theological difference. It's not like one group of manuscripts says, hey, Jesus was crucified, and another group says, hey, he fell off a ladder cleaning the gutters. It's not that different. It's not like that. All of the variants are very minor ones that, that might make it a little bit of a difference, but they're actually in the footnotes of your study Bible, and they have no consequence. So here's the thing that I don't want you to miss. The men and the women who copied these important documents, they did not make copies because they thought they were inspired. They made copies of the gospel because they believed they were true, because they were there, or they knew people who were there. There was eyewitnesses. I mean, uh, God had some, done something in history, and people were like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I'm going to be able to hold on to this document while I make a copy of it? Uh, that would be so amazing. And it's not like paper is just laying around. I mean, this was tablets made out of wax. So the, I'm telling you, this was an explosion around the teachings of the life of Jesus. Amazing. Okay, back to our timetable for a second. Then something extraordinary happens. I'm going from 70 AD, and I'm going to skip over all the way to 312 AD. In 312, Constantine, at the Battle of Milvian Bridge at the Tiber River, he destroys Maxentius' army. Now, there was actually three emperors at that time. So Constantine, he gets rid of his primary enemy, his primary adversary, and a third guy that nobody really cares about anyway. And in 312, essentially, Constantine becomes the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. You guys paying attention? I just threw that in there to see if you are. Come on, now wake up with me. So he becomes the undisputed emperor of Rome. The Tetrarchy, because before there was three, comes to an end. And the church during this time, again, it's so amazing. I had, a, I had a lot of fun studying this stuff. I mean, this is just eye-opening. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome stuff. It's between the time of Jesus' death and the destruction of the temple. And that time, Constantine becomes the emperor and the church. And here's the key. This is one of the unexplained mysteries of history the church had gained extraordinary and unexplainable 
growth and influence in the world. And during most of this time, the church was persecuted. During most of these times, you cannot be caught with some of these manuscripts that you made copies of or these fragments or scraps of documents. And most of these times, the emperors from time to time would just make it open season on Christians. And yet, in spite of all of that, between 30 AD and 312 AD, when Constantine became the undisputed emperor of Rome, Christianity had spread so far that before it was even legal to become a Christian, Constantine's mother became a believer. So he lived through this religious restriction, a lot of, a lot, a lot of other religions to become reality in the Roman Empire. And as you know, he personally and ultimately embraced Christianity. But here's the fascinating part about that. In your ancient history classes and in most ancient history books, do you know what the explanation is? Do you think they would say because he had a personal relationship with Christ? Why Constantine made Christianity legal? It wasn't because of his personal faith. Constantine, and I think this is a showstopper personally, Constantine legalized Christianity to unify the empire. There were so many Christians in the Roman Empire at this time that became Christians that when he had the power, he realized, you know, I need something to unify the empire. And oh my gosh, I think it might, might be this new Christian faith. Folks, how in the world did that happen? But here's my point. Christianity made its greatest strides during the 282 years before the Bible even existed. There was no Bible like we know the Bible. There was no Old Testament and New Testament put together. The Bible says, you know, where somebody would be able to say, well, the Bible says, where the Bible says, well, I read here that the Bible says you couldn't do that back then. In fact, the Jewish scriptures and, you know, back to the timetable, the Jewish scriptures, they were called the old, that we call the Old Testament, which, listen, it's kind of an insult to the Jewish people because we said, hey, we're going to take your Jewish scriptures, we're going to combine them with our scriptures, and we're going to rename it. That, 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 that's highly offensive to Jewish people. But those Jewish scripture, scriptures were not combined with this New Testament documents, catch this, until 350 A.D. Because it was way too expensive. It was an entirely Greek version. Uh, not a lot of people could actually read it. I mean, it was not just able for distribution or readily available for distribution. There's no telling how much it was going to cost. Nobody was going to be able to own one because of that. But it's the first time that we know of where they may have been some copies or some parts of copies that the first occasion where the Old Testament and the New Testament came together, it was 350 years after the birth of Christ. And here's a clincher to that. This was not even referred to as the Bible until 30 years after that, in 380 AD. So my point, before the Old Testament and the New Testament combined titled The Bible, Christianity had already, before there was a Bible, had already replaced Pantheon, Roman, Barbarian, and most Egyptian gods. It was a state religion of the Roman Empire, and no one had even held a Bible in their hand. You, ever, you, want, you wonder why? The first, second, and third century Christians who faced tremendous hardship, and I don't want you to miss this, believed that Jesus loved them 
before the Bible told him so. Peter believed Jesus loved him. James, John, Luke, Paul, Ringo believed that Jesus loved him. You guys paying attention? Come on now. And this is huge. Peter, James, Paul, the apostles, they did not choose to follow Jesus because of this infallible Old Testament or non-contradicting New Testament. Can you imagine the conversation that somebody uh, with all this information comes to the apostle Peter and let's say the apostle Peter, hey, Peter, before you get all, these, all this geeked out about this Jesus thing, do you realize that there's no evidence for the worldwide flood? Before you get all crazy about this whole Jesus following thing, do you know that there's no archaeological evidence for the Exodus? Hey, Paul, before you get all crazy about Jesus, do you realize that the earth is, according to the Bible, only 6,000 years old? Peter would have looked at you and said, hey, I'm not really sure what, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Because I followed a man for three years who spoke like no other man before him. He was arrested, and he was crucified, and then we all thought, man, the game over, because he was too good to be a teacher. He claimed too much to be just a good teacher. So we thought, man, game over, so we all went into hiding. But then a bunch of women came screaming, saying that the tomb was empty, and the tomb was empty because I looked in the empty tomb, and do you know what I concluded after that? That somebody must have stole the body. But guess what? A few days later, I had breakfast with my risen friend on the beach. So I'm not sure about the 6,000-year-old stuff. I'm not sure about the archaeological evidence. I'm not sure about all of that. But the reason that I follow Jesus, Peter says, is because I saw him die. I saw him alive. And then I went into the streets of Jerusalem and said, God has done something among us. Amen, right? For the first 300 years, folks, the debate is centered on an event, not a book. The question was not, is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? The question was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And Matthew said he did. Mark said he did. Luke said he did, and John said he did, and Peter said he did, and James, the brother of Jesus, said he did, and the apostle Paul, who hated Christians, eventually came to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. Folks, there is no explanation for the success of the early church if it had not been so. Christianity does not hang by the thread of the Bible told me so. And if your church or this church sends you up to college with that house of cards, I apologize. I really do. And if your entire life, this whole thing has been, I have to defend the Bible, there's information that looks like it contradicts the Bible, uh, and you're telling your kids, don't read that, don't look over here, honey, that just, that, that's not good for you. I am so sorry that we left you with a fragile version of your faith. Because the original version, the pre-Bible version, was defensible. It was endurable. Look, it was prosecutable. It was fearless. It was compassionate. And it was compelling. It was about a man named Jesus. And that was it. And now we're adults. And now we're all grown up. And now I am challenging you, challenging you to embrace this grown-up God 
And this grown-up version of this precious, precious scriptures that I take so seriously. Not because they're in the Bible, but because Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus talked about how important these scriptures were. So now you're an adult, and let me just say this to you. Jesus loves you. This you know, for John, who watched him die and had breakfast with him on the beach, tells you so. Jesus loves you. And God is good. Jesus loves you. This I know for Luke, who thoroughly investigated the events, wrote them down meticulously, and interviewed eyewitnesses, made sure that it was so. Jesus loves you. This I know because a Pharisee who hated Christians, who was going to arrest Christians, who was single-handedly going to stop the Jesus movement and became a follower of Christ, risked his life traveling around the entire gentle Mediterranean rim that, to make sure that you would know. Jesus loves you. This I know because his original followers were martyred, believing that it was so. Jesus loves you, this you know, for the early church defied an entire empire and the temple because they were convinced that it was so. So the reason that you should consider following Jesus is not because the Bible says so, because it's all about the who. It's not about the what. It has everything to do with who Jesus claimed to be and the fact that he punctuated his claims by dying on the cross and rising from the dead and predicting it right before that happened. And fortunately for us, the eyewitness of those events documented those events. But you see, they did not document those events because of what they believed. They documented what they saw and experienced. Christianity did not disrupt the Roman Empire because of the Bible, folks. Christianity disrupted the Roman Empire because of a resurrected Savior, and his name is Jesus. And I want to tell you this morning that maybe what we need to do is fall in love with that man again, if you're not already. So Jesus loves you, this you can know, because a resurrected Savior who loves you, this you can know. He died for your personal sins to prove that it was so. So folks, if you know someone, or you, and you're thinking of stepping away from this Christianity because of the Bible, folks, I love the Bible. This is not about the Bible is wrong. This is about Jesus. I want to encourage you to reconsider. I am convinced that you may be stepping away unnecessarily. I just want to encourage you this morning to just go back to your first love, Jesus Christ. Now, next week, we're going to continue the same conversation. But next week, we're going to ask the question, okay, what did Jesus say about God? And here's why you don't want to miss next week, because it continues and you're going to have all kinds of questions right now about what I just said, and maybe you're still processing, and you're going to walk out, and you'll be like, whoa, that was way too much information. I know that's going to happen, and it's okay, but you have to come back next week to continue that dialogue. If you are considering, you know, again, anyone you know anybody, if you're reconsidering the faith, and you're trying to dismiss it, come back so you can hear about what 
Jesus has to say about God, where we ask those questions. But before you guys walk out, let me pray for us. Oh, Father, thank you so much for just allowing us to be at a church where we can talk about these things. Lord, because it's all about you, and we thank you for that. And thank you for allowing documentation. Thank you for protecting it. Thank you for the men and women who died for these documents so that we could have copies. Lord, it's, it's even miraculous that they even survived the first century. And yet here we are, Lord. Father, for many of us, we, we just want to say amen to that. Because you worked in us, we've seen you, we feel you, we, and you're all around us in our lives. But Father, there, there's also men and women, maybe even here right now, Maybe as a college student or a senior in high school, the person who's just struggling with faith because of different circumstances, Lord, I'm going to ask again that you would do what only you can do and stir in their hearts and start to work inside of them. Speak into their lives, Father. Father, make them be curious and give them the courage to lift their eyes and perhaps maybe even take a step in your direction. And Father, we pray all these things in the matchless, beautiful, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.